Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon, and this is a podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Today is a very special episode because it not only marks the one-year anniversary of Film Trooper, but it also is going to honor uh, the vets. And we had Veterans Day uh, last week here in America, and I was in New York at the time, so I saw the parade, uh, the floats, and, and all the, um, the people gathered together for this parade that was going to happen um, in New York. So it was really exciting. But for this episode, I'm going to interview my father, who is a vet who was in the Vietnam War in the, uh, the armed services in the Army. And so this episode will probably steer a little differently than what uh, the normal interviews I've had in the past, which was mostly focused on filmmaking or entrepreneurs and how entrepreneurs can uh, give us advice as filmmakers to build a sustainable online living and so on. So in this episode, I'm going to be asking my father what it was like to be drafted into the armed services, what his experiences were like uh, during uh, basic training all the way before he got deployed to Thailand, where he eventually met my my mom. And without that happening, I wouldn't have been born. At the same time, I really wanted to hear some stories about my father's perspective in terms of uh, movies and when he was growing up and like sort of what that theater experience was like. And uh, so it kind of weaves in and out of different stories, but I think it's compelling enough. Uh, my dad's always been a very big storyteller or a very good storyteller growing up. And so as my brothers and I could attest, we've heard almost every single story in snippets, but I've never actually heard it sort of all in one context and a sort of a linear conversation. And in a whole other context, it's actually kind of interesting, like how many of us have had a serious sort of sit down with our parents and just had a real conversation about their lives or their experiences, like in an hour, you know, we, you know, growing up, I'm sure we all have had snippets or little bits and pieces of conversation. Um, but for me, you know, now that I think about it, I never really sat down and asked my father, you know, what was it like? So you are invited to hear these stories from my father, um, what it was like in the service for him. And also, I'm honored to be part of the VoicesForVet.co. If you go to VoicesForVet.co instead of .com, it's .co, C-O, uh, you'll see all the other podcasters that are involved in this um, tribute to the vets uh, this past week. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this very unique interview as it marks the one-year anniversary for Film Trooper, as well as celebrating the vets of our country here on the Film Trooper podcast. <laughs> so welcome to my office. <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me. All right. Well, so this is supposed, I didn't get a chance to do this because it was supposed to be for Veterans Day or the Veterans Week last week, but because we were in New York, I just didn't get an opportunity and I didn't want to um, call in when I knew I could just have you in the home office, you know? And so I know it's one week late, but what the hell? So happy Veterans Day. Thank you. So, you know, Jillian and I were at um, New York and they had the parade. So like like all the – a lot of Harley Davidson guys, you know, had the Long Island Biker Club or whatever had come out. My clan. Yeah, right. It's true. So that's when we saw the Hampton Jitney. So we were like walking and, and like all the floats were lining up down the street uh, where we were. We were on 28th and Madison. So um, just right there in the corner were all these floats um, – I mean, we didn't see the parade. We just saw the beginning parts of it because we had gone up to um, the Met at that point, uptown. So pretty crazy. So the reason to talk about New York is because where were you born? Well, I was born in uh, Flushing, Queens, 
It took you a while to remember, didn't it? No. I'm just I'm doing I'm I'm just being deliberate. <laughs> <laughs> um hold on for a second. So, All right. Sorry. I want to make sure the microphone was close enough that you could talk. You know. Okay. Should I get closer? No, you have a pretty loud voice. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, I had you guys, so I needed it. Okay. Flushing, Queens, New York. Right. Yeah. And that's where I was born. I told you, you know, I was born in Southampton, right? You were born in Southampton. Your brother was born in Flushing. Yeah, right. So, my other brother. Then Adam was born in Southampton, too. Right. right? But I wanted to know, you know, because when I t- met, you know... When I had met uh, my first agent in Los Angeles, you know, she was from New York, uh, thick New York accent, and she wanted to know where I was born or where, was I, where I was from. And I said, oh, I was born in Southampton. She was like, get out of here. No one's born in Southampton. <laughs> <laughs> so and it's, I thought about it in the perspective. It was like, uh, yeah, it wasn't like we had a big mansion or anything. But uh, No, but the, you, you can leave people an impression. Yeah, I see. You know, you're born in <laughs> I can lie. Is, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so when... What uh, when did you know you had an interest in the arts, like uh, drawing and painting? God, when I was about three or four years old. Okay, so then, um, what when did you know that you wanted to get to Los Angeles? Why Los Angeles, and why the Art uh, Center? The Art Center College of Design. I did not know uh, until I was looking at colleges. Um, at first, when I graduated from high school, or I was in the process of looking at colleges. I looked at Notre Dame, and I was on the list to, to, to go to Notre Dame and the University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio. But Dayton had a better art college at the time. And it was during the time when I was at Dayton that I became aware of the Art Center. The Dayton Art Institute, Jonathan Winters went there, and he was studying to be a commercial artist, and as I was. And, uh, but I... The, the education, I felt I could get more somewhere else. And I found that the Arts Center College of Design had a lot more to offer. As it turns out, it was one of the top colleges in the world for what it offers. So um, after two years, I left for Los Angeles. What year did you go to Los Angeles? 1963 to 66. Okay, so tell me what that was like, the... Uh the excitement of knowing that you got in, uh, had you always had an interest in going to L.A.? We're talking Hollywood. This is like the middle of Hollywood, wasn't it? Yeah. I was always, Actually, I was always interested in movies as a kid. Um, you know, you watch these movies on TV or in the, in the theaters, and I became really interested in the, the whole um, filmmaking scene. So... Um, I went to Los Angeles to the Arts Center primarily because of the school, not because of its location. But uh, it was a plus because I got to meet so many um, people in, in the field, both both in the arts, in all aspects of the arts, music, theater, film, uh, and, in, and in my endeavor, illustration and painting. Can you relive sort of like the emotions of traveling uh, across the country to get to LA and sort of what was your what were your first impressions what was like Los Angeles Hollywood like in the early 60s and what kind of energy buzz was in the air well um, when I I flew I flew to the Los Angeles airport and flew right into smog that was the first thing I saw 
In fact, uh, you didn't see the city. You saw the, you saw a smog. And I said, oh, boy. And I, I was in this little reception area where the, the baggage was. And lo and behold, there I meet uh, uh, Rod Serling from the Twilight Zone. Just in the airport? Yeah, just in the airport. He was right next to me. And then I turned around because uh, I saw... Uh, uh, is it John Tunney, the the boxer, and who was the other guy? Oh, um, the heavyweight champion of the world. It was Max. name is not Max Schmeling um, or Max uh, Bear. Uh, the name escapes me. But as I turned around and I had my luggage in my hand, I hit Walter Pigeon right in the stomach, <laughs> and he he was a tall guy and he bowed over and I apologized. He said, "Oh, no problem," you know. So he was very for, gracious. For those who don't know who Walter Pigeon is, can you, I mean, because a lot of these people were probably uh, right. Well, Walter Pigeon was a famous actor in the forties, thirties, and forties, and fifties, and uh, he did a you know he was a lead actor in a lot of films, uh, but highly recognizable. So um, anyway, uh, I was uh, immediately I was surrounded by Hollywood. You know? <laughs> And so I, you know, my head was swirling. Well, I had, you know, and then, then I had to get out, and I had to go to uh, uh, to the place where I uh, made arrangements to live. And I was in a boarding house on, at North Alexandria, uh, which is right down the block from uh, the the hotel where Robert F. Kennedy was killed. Oh, so well, uh, this is he didn't die until sixty eight. Sixty eight. Yeah, but I mean, it was a famous hotel, and I, the name again escapes me. Uh, it'll I'll rec- I'll recover and right, remember. Right. Um, but the the boarding house I was in was pretty nice, and uh, it had about nine bedrooms. Well, it was it was owned by um, Charlie Chase, the silent screen star. Charlie Chase. Yeah. So, uh, not to be confused by Charlie Chaplin, not Charlie Chaplin, but Charlie Chase. But he was another, you know, another famous guy who did very well in his life. And uh, half half of it was uh, the the borders were artists going to art center. The other half were Indians going to a tech school. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. So, in fact, uh, one of the fellows was the great grandson of Sitting Bull. Hmm. And so we used to jam. We used okay, to ha- when you're saying Indians, we're talking about Native Americans. Native Americans. Not like the Indians that we see of India. We're talking about the language of my right. era. Yes. So we're going to get a little racist here. No, it's not racist at all. <laughs> old, old man speak. <laughs> I have the greatest respect. I love... Because uh, you know, you've commonly uh, referred to marrying mom as uh, you married an Oriental. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, in those days, it was they were Orientals. Or, you know, that's what we called them. <laughs> you know, she's an Oriental rug. <laughs> right now, you to me, you're still a little a, a rug rat. You know? <laughs> okay, so you go uh, and to clarify, the Native Americans um, were to studying tech, and, and you're studying art right. at the same school. So, mm-hmm. um, at what point, like just emotionally, what was the buzz like in terms of you're just ex- you're you know how old were you at the time? Um. Uh, 20. 20, 20, 21, just hitting that just stride. 20. And then, um, so what was it like the nightlife or this, the social aspects of the world that you were thrown into? Well, nightlife was the most immediate. Um, the, 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 the guy that uh, was taking care of the, 
the boarding house was also an actor and he was a celebrity he was a good friend of Elvis Presley's he was taking me out on meeting helping me meet girls and all this and uh <laughs> yeah so um okay you got it was me it was immediate all right, tell the famous story that I've heard many times before uh, where you were invited by this guy to go to Elvis's house. So Elvis Presley's house. What was like a party he was throwing? Well, he, he used to throw a party in his, I think his Bel Air mansion every, like every Friday. And uh, anyway, it, the, the event never occurred. That's because um, he had another arrangement. So, But what he did tell me was that uh, what it was like to be over there and he said, basically, you know, Elvis is surrounded by girls. They watch TV. And I said, boy, it sounds boring to me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's about the gist of it. You know, I mean, everybody tells stories. And uh, I, I, I wasn't there, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For, for a guy's perspective. Right. For a girl's perspective, you're pretty good. Yeah. What, um, yeah, so funny. You got to, uh... so what... When did you get into sort of the? Uh, when did you get into the the folk music scene, or like what what got your uh, interest then? Well, I had been interested in music. I studied music. I mean, I, piano and trumpet and French horn through the school systems. You know, going growing up, uh, picked up a guitar um, before I went to college, and I had to play you know play music, play folk music. But I got when I was in high school, I was interested in folk music. Oh, okay. So was it prominent in the New York scene? Oh, sure, sort of the absolutely. Scene? Okay. Oh, absolutely. You know the Kingston Trio and um, you know Peter Paul and Mary and that group and so on. It was a date in Ohio, as a matter of fact, that I was the uh, when I was going to the University of Dayton. I was the assistant manager for the Lemon Tree Cafe and the the Fine Arts Theater. So I had to handle both. And uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary came to town to do a concert at the University of Dayton. And I did their portraits, huge six-foot uh, caricatures of their heads that were hung on the backdrop of their, of their concert in the, uh, on the stage. And then I invited them for dinner. And uh, Peter and Paul had different arrangements, but Mary came, and so we had dinner together. Oh, wow. Yeah. Look at that. And uh, then the, the, I, I gave the portraits. They signed the portraits, and the portraits were handed over to the Lemon Tree Cafe, which was hung there. So, you know, I, I, we got to talk a lot about the, the folk scene during a little dinner. Because in, when you got into L.A., you had a chance to perform at the Troubadour? I performed at the Troubadour. We were called the Windjammers. It was, a, it was a trio. It was a trio. You can go a lot of different ways with the whim jammers. Uh, it sounds gaseous. I know. <laughs> I know. But I wrote a song. I wrote the. I wrote the song. I wrote some music some, uh, for our group, and uh, we had to perform behind uh, the um, the guy the the, the, tr the group that did uh, Georgie Girl. Um, name escapes me. It was a nine piece band and. I mean, they were getting encores after encores, and then we came on, and we really weren't ready. <laughs> and uh, so it was Bill Williams, myself, and uh, Lynn Martyr. Lynn Martyr went, actually went on to do television work. She uh, was uh, partnered with David Soule, did a lot of music 
with her, him, and they were an item together. Uh, but we, uh, she and I really, we synced up pretty well. Uh, the first song that we performed didn't go over so well, and of course people were a little <laughs> tepid with their, you know, their applause. And in fact, there wasn't much. So, <laughs> so Bill Williams walks off the stage, and I grabbed Lynn. I says, "Lynn, we're not getting off here until we do it right." So she, we did a duet, and we came off looking pretty good, and everybody applauded. But I, I, uh, I, I sang solo in in different, uh, you know, cafes. Pretty crazy. Uh, did you get a chance to see that movie uh, Inside um, Lewin? Uh, oh God, I'm gonna screw up. It's a new Coen Brother movie that came out last year. It was like kind of encapsulated. I, I didn't see it, book. but I want to see it. Yeah, it's um, it's in, it's interesting. It kind of reminded me of like the tales that you would tell me about the folk uh, music scene, but uh, and this one is sp- specifically in New York. You know, just like the rise before Bob Dylan hits right. it. So it's uh, it's actually quite interesting. Yeah. Um, so you hear you were in L.A., but you said there were a lot of other things. Like you were uh, riding motorcycles. You were invited to be part of like some of these like B-rated um, movies of the time, the 60s, like the uh, like that was popular during that time, like sort of the Roger Corman stuff where uh, they needed people to ride bikes. Yeah. You know? was, so yeah. Tell me about that one. Well, I was uh, – I had a friend, uh, Walter Rainey, who was a writer and actor. He was actually in the film – um, Spartacus, and he was in um, uh, a, a number of Stanley Kramer's films, and um, so we went to the Screen Writers Guild, and uh, you know, then a lot of the actors and writers to get together and what they do at the guild, and I was introduced to some some of the filmmakers there, and they knew I rode a motorcycle from our conversation. So they wanted me to be, uh, if I would join, you know, be a gang member, a biker <laughs> in a film. Well, you know, these things happen quite a bit. Uh, it never materialized, yeah. you know, and I really wasn't... Uh, interested. I, I, was, I would have been interested if it, if it took the next step, but it just never took the next step. Yeah. You know, those things occur all the time. Well, you were focused on... Your my illustration, oh, yeah, yeah. fine art career. So yeah. it's all this stuff was just on the side. It just right. happened to be in. You were just in the, in the spot where all this stuff was happening. Exactly. Um, so, what was the climate like, in terms of the emotional angst or anxiety of knowing that the draft was happening, knowing that your name would be called, and sort of that whole experience of knowing that eventually. Did it cut short your time in college, or no. they waited till you after before mm-hmm. you got um, enlisted? Or yeah, t- no, I was, uh, yeah, I was already graduated. Went back to New York, got a job as an illustrator for uh, CA Parcel Studios in Midtown Manhattan. So I did a lot of advertising work and uh, advertising illustration, and that's when I got called up and uh, went to. I had to go to Fort Hamilton. I think it was in Jersey, um, for my induction. And uh, as it turns out, I was only nine names away from being drafted into the Marines. Uh, oh. And that was something I didn't want to do, but uh, I didn't, didn't see myself as a grunt. Yeah. Anyway, um, and all, you know, all respect to the, to the grunts of the, of the world because they, they do a remarkable job. I have great respect for the Marines, but for me... Personally, it wasn't 
something I wanted to do. Well, what was the emotions like in terms of like uh, knowing friends and that are just like the concept of young people right now being drafted would be like crazy in terms of like what you know? Well, so, there's a lot of uncertainty. You're going into a war is going on and you don't know what's you know where your life is going to end up. So yeah, there's concern. So so you're working and then uh, did it come in a like a phone call, a letter, or how did it, how did you know that it was your time to be? Uh, it was a, a notice. Yeah, it was a notice. They, you have a draft card. You know, they notify you that you've been in, you're being called up, and then you have to be you have to go for a physical. Okay, so let me ask you. So you get this draft notice. So what goes through your brain? Your brain because you're working in Midtown Manhattan, right? Yeah, but uh, but I also knew that I could be drafted. It okay. wasn't like a big surprise. Okay, so it was just mentally you were prepared, like, yeah. okay, it's time to go. Yeah. And then um, what was the family reaction and stuff like that? No, no big deal. <laughs> I, I guess mean, you're expendable. Go. <laughs> no, I mean, my, my parents lived through World War II. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was alive during World War II. Um, so, you know, and I lived through the Korean War. And, uh, you know, so... War was part of everybody's life. Yeah. So then you get, then you go, um, and you saw that your name. Uh, did you know you wanted to be part of the uh, army if you had a branch to select, or you just make sure you, you didn't just didn't want to be part of the? Well, they draft you in the army. The army is the one that drafts. You. Oh, okay. Uh, then the navy gets a selection, and the navy will either draft for the navy or for the marines. So what was the process like when you're doing your physical and the interviews and and for them to assess? Was it just like numbers? They're just like a well, yeah, healthy body. You know, you're just on a line, and they check your heart. They check your, you know, they check your vitals and so on. I had, uh, but I had, uh, medi- I had uh, uh, medical records because of my my knees. I have very bad knees, and um, I should not have been drafted because because of my knees. Um, but there were guys in there. There was this one guy that was that had the body of the Hulk, you know, and he got he got four F because he had acne. What? Yeah, but another guy had a a, a a a bad spine. He needed to wear a brace uh, to keep his spine in place, and he got drafted. Crazy. That just shows you the mentality of, uh, you know, and that's what's was scary. Yeah. You know, when you look at what that was, you know, what was going on there. So, um, so how how fast of a turnaround when you got the draft notice? You did your physical before you were in boot camp. Uh, where'd you go to be boot camp, and when did you know you were going to be uh, deployed? To... Oh, deployed. I was. Did I said uh, deployed. 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 This is yeah. The... Well, it was let deploring. Me... You're deploring. It was deploring. I <laughs> uh, went to Fort Jackson, uh, South Carolina, and went by train. And uh, we're in there, and um, we asked the the not the conductor. I guess it was the conductor. But it was a black gentleman who was, uh, uh, we asked him something, and he basically told us, um, you know, he treated us like cattle because he was basically acting as if as if he were the sergeant and just telling us where to go, you know, and told us to shut up and be quiet. Just, you know, I mean, it, it, it was a shock. I said, okay. And then we got to, uh, we, we, got to we got out of the train before Jackson, and they were yelling at us right away. Um, and then they asked if anybody had college, and I raised my hand. So they tasked me 
to read the letters of all of these guys who were being drafted. You know, they were getting from doctors, from lawyers, from the prison system, uh, from their parents and so on. And so I had to sit and read these letters. And then it really got scary because there were people in there for murder. There were people in there who were psychotic uh, and, and, and just a whole litany of issues Huh. And I'd be I'd be sleeping with these guys, you know, yeah, yeah, or yeah. working with these guys. So yeah, that set me up for uh, real anxiety. Yeah. So how long were you in boot camp in South Carolina? Um. Well, it was there for a couple of months. We had um, uh, it was basic training, and um, so we had to go through through that. But and that was a whole interesting experience, and that's what kind of um, stiffened my back and became, you know, took control of my life in a way, um, because of all of the influences and, um, you know, the harshness of it. In, in a way, there were some really um, mean sergeants mm-hmm. who liked to beat up people. And they were big and strong, you know, and so on. And but I had a sergeant. I had my first sergeant was Jim Butler, uh, um, a big guy, and who was, but he was gentle, but he was well respected. Hmm. And um, and he he made us work harder. We instead of running a mile every morning, we had to run two miles. But we were well conditioned, and he kind of protected us. Um. But there was periods in which uh, there was a group from our company uh, that were beating up on other other guys, weaker guys. There was this group of guys from Kentucky and Tennessee that weren't very strong, and they had bad health, bad teeth. I mean, they were they mm-hmm. really looked bad, and they were considered, uh, you know, um, inferiors by some of the some of the uh, soldiers. And they were beaten up, and I, I got I got very angry, so I got a, a bunch of guys from my uh, from my barracks, and we went over. We took our entrenching tools, and I talked to the leader of the guy. I says, "If you ever touch anybody else again, I'm going to put this entrenching tool in your head." And it scared the hell out of them, and <laughs> they never bothered anybody again. But the next morning, the first sergeant was congratulating those guys beating up those inferiors. Uh. And that's when I, I says, okay, this is this, so. This is the game. This is the way they play it. And uh, but I wasn't going to stand for it. So it's interesting to hear that. And then uh, I don't know. You know, did you ever watch the movie Platoon? Did yeah. you ever see that? Yeah. Like so, that's probably rings a little true in terms of the infighting mm-hmm. in in politics of you know the armed services mm-hmm. in a volatile situation like that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Well, the, the the one thing that I that really came about was there was a um, about a meningitis, and a spinal meningitis, mm-hmm. and there were a couple of guys who died, and uh, we were getting sick. There were a lot of people getting sick, um, so I had a fever and I was getting sick, and um, we were supposed to go out on night maneuvers for a week, and God, we couldn't do this because we were sick. So uh, the guy next to me was really sick. He couldn't walk. So I carried him to uh, to the... Uh, infirmary? What do you call not it? to the infirmary. It's to the, where, where the, the night sergeant is. And um, 
I forgot the name of the what the headquarters is. So I said, look, we need a, an ambulance. And uh, it was just nine of us that came out from our barracks. But, and all of a sudden, you see a whole bunch of other troops coming out. There were about 60 guys that were sick. All sick. Yeah. So uh, we were asking for, you know, the doctor because they, we, we were sick. And uh, the sergeant didn't call. He called, he called the doctor. And I think they called an ambulance. <clears throat> but they also called the first sergeant who was head of the company. And uh, he came over first. And he was yelling at us to go back. And he says, we thought we were scouting, you know, skirting our uh, night missions, you know, or our night maneuvers. And I said, no, no. And I stood up and I said, no, no, we're sick. And, um, you know, I'm holding up this guy and he's sick. And he told me that I was, he, he yelled at me, thought he was a guardhouse lawyer. And, uh, and he says, I, I don't have anybody, you know, uh, ruining my record. So he was concerned about his record, you know, getting people through basic training. And, uh, and I said, I said, don't you think it'll be a lot worse if people start dying on, you know, and it'll be on your record? And I said, we're not leaving here. Just you get the doctor, damn it. And that's it. And he, and I says, I'm going to have your ass. I'm going to recycle your ass, he told me. And I says, well, you do that, but I'm going to get a doctor first. So uh, the nine, and most of the guys went back to their barracks. But the original nine, I told them to stay because they were ready to go back. And I said, no, you're not going back. You're staying here. You guys are sick. So uh, the doctor, who was a major, I'm excuse me, he was a captain. He came in. And uh, I had 104 temperature. Hmm. The guy I was holding up was, had 106. He was near oh, death. Oh, God. And uh, the doctor turned to the, to the lieutenant. And he says, I'm going to have your ass. These guys are sick, and they're going to the hospital. So um, I never saw that guy again because he was recycled before I. <laughs> he was sent to Vietnam. You. He was sent to Vietnam. I think I, I think I heard because he was he was he was his command was getting he was he was uh, seen as to be a you know a defective uh, leader. Anyway, the first night we were in the hospital. Uh, there was a guy in a bathtub full of ice. His temperature was so high they were trying to bring it down, mm-hmm. and he was near dead. I mean, this was the this is a scene of kind of the concerns and you know of what was going on at that time. The next morning, I woke, and this nurse comes in and told us to get up and start buffing the floors. <laughs> and I said, "Wait a minute, we're the patients here." Uh, and the poor kid, that the young guy that was next to me. He was ready to get up, but he couldn't walk. And I said, no, you sit down. I told the nurse to get the hell out of here. And I says, you buff the floors. And I says, I'm going to, and she told me, I'm going to have your ass. And she walks out, and then the captain comes in, the doctor comes in. And I told the doctor, he, I says, I'm sick. I'm the patient. She wanted me to buff the floors. And he says, you're right. And he told her to get out. <laughs> so that was, that, this This sounds unreal, but that's exactly what happened. It must be interesting going from, you know, college graduate, you know, this uh, this mecca of, of like creativity in Hollywood during the 60s and, you know, all sorts of people and, ha- and then going back to New York and, you know, two major cities, Los Angeles and New York. And then all of a sudden being thrust into, we're going to control you, we're going to own you. And like, you know, that must have been like... Um, like you said, force you just to to make you know stand up to say whoa, 
This is like it's 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 hard. I can see where if you're trying to enlist a bunch of people that didn't have any of that type of experience before, or or worldly knowledge, or um, you know experiences that would make them individuals. You know, so then here you were, someone who's very uh, you know self-sufficient, individual, individual, and creative, uh, creatively um, adept, being thrown into a situation where like you know, shut up. Here we go. You know. The only thing is, is that, again, as I said, there was a transformation that took place because I started throwing my fears away, you know, pushing them aside and standing up and being firm and realizing that if you assert yourself in certain ways and if, you, and if you're assured, if you have the confidence uh, that you can remold the situation in a way. But creativity also happens in, in limitations, you know, in a limited environment, when there is confinement, you find new ways of doing things. Uh, I, and I think this is true of every artist. When they're thrust with a lot of obstacles, they find new ways of doing things, and magic happens. Yeah. So what? Um, so you get out of uh, basic training, and then did you know that uh, eventually you're going to be uh, deployed to? Um, no, Vietnam, I went or? to. Uh, it's called. I, I was then sent to Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Uh, I wanted to be an illustrator. That was my MOS. That was what I wanted to do. So I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a, a combat illustrator. I wanted to go into combat and be an illustrator because I, some of the greatest art I've ever seen came out of combat. Um, when did the, you When did you figure this out? Like right away when you got drafted? You were no, saying, look, I have this skill set as an artist. No, or, I became aware you... of it early on. Um, I, you know, I, I've studied a lot of different types of art, illustration, painting, and so on. I came across, uh, combat art, uh, you know, through my, through my studies, through my interests, through my curiosities and so on. I know, no, but so like you have this interest, but then, um, then you're in the service now. Like at what time did you start kind of connecting the dots of saying? Almost immediately. Like, okay, you know what? I don't want to just be a sol- like a soldier that's mm-hmm. going to be thrown out on the front lines and just be you know, right. I knew taken right out. Away. Like well, I have a, an asset, I have a value. Where mm-hmm. can I fit in here? I already knew that there, were, that there were jobs and I knew where I could fit. I knew that I could be an artist in the, in the Army. So I petitioned for that. Um, I also, uh, and so as it turns out, when I went to uh, Fort Bragg, I was, um, I joined the group called the PSYOPs, Psychological Operations, and they needed artists, so I was an artist. And uh, So what did you do? Well, I did, at at first it was, uh, while I was there, you're, you're still going through some training. Um, some kind of basic training, but immediately I was um, I met an artist who was uh, being I think he was being uh, getting out of the army, and he was already uh, hooked up with this Colonel Malloy out at Fort Bragg, and he was doing some special projects, art projects for him, and the the colonel had an idea that he wanted a mural for the John F Kennedy Warfare Center. This is where the, all the VIPs come from all over the world uh, during the Vietnam War and their strategies and so on. And they wanted something in the, in the lobby, uh, a mural. So uh, 
so this artist uh, got me hooked up with a colonel, and as I took over when that artist left. And so my job was to build this mural. So that's what I did. I, uh, he loved what I was doing. and uh, So your mural still exists today at yeah. Fort Bragg? Oh, yeah. What's it called? I don't I didn't give it a name. <laughs> I didn't even give it a name, but it basically has uh, the four ethnic races holding up a, uh, a globe, and there's the Statue of Liberty, and it's showing uh, uh, new warfare versus the old warfare. You saw in the background primitive man beating on each other, whereas your the psychological operations is winning the minds and hearts of people rather than beating their bodies, and that was the that was the theme. Hmm. So, um, what other paintings did you do? While you were at Bragg, I thought you did some more beside the mural. Did you do any others? Like yeah, portraits I did. And stuff? Yeah, I did portraits and illustrations. Right. Well, I did a lot of work uh, when I eventually got to Thailand, which is I was uh, deployed to Thailand for the ninety third, 91st PsyOps group. So, uh, because of you were with this group, the yeah. PsyOps, what when did you get the call that you're going to the? Well, they had an opening for the PsyOps going over to uh, to Thailand. And, and why did you want to go to Thailand? I had a, I don't know, I felt I needed to go there. I just felt that there was something, it was a draw, that I really wanted to be there. Back, back in 1956, I saw the movie The King and I, and I was so drawn to that movie, the you know, the, the Siam. And uh, something about Siam just drew me. So I made a request of Colonel Malloy, who became General Malloy, uh, if I could go, he he said, "Well, if you can get me another artist to replace you in finishing up the mural," I says, "Yeah, I got, I got somebody." So I did, and uh, so for you, just wanted to, you had this sense of adventure, this draw. This oh says, yeah, you know, I'm going. It's not necessarily in Vietnam; it'd be in Thailand, right? So you're like, okay. So what was the experience like? Of what kind of plane did you fly over? Boat did you take? It was a C-130. It was a cargo plane. We flew over the DMZ. We were shot at. Uh, the pilot was saying they're trying to down us. <laughs> I said, oh, great. <laughs> says, but we're too high up. And he says, so they were missing us. What was the, um, how, when did you fly out of Los Angeles? Or what did you fly You know, out? I forgot. No, we flew out. I mean, originally it was flown out of uh, um, Fort Bragg. But I, I mean, I, I, I don't recall the route, quite frankly. I'm just saying how uncomfortable in a cargo for 17 hours or however long it was, 20 mm, hours. 20-some, more than that, yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. numb the pain. Yeah. So you get to Thailand. Well, we, we actually had stops along the way. We flew. We stopped in Hawaii. It was my first trip to Hawaii. And then we went to Wake and to Guam and to the Philippines. So how, st- how long of a stay did you get in these little places? Was it overnight or what was a few days? Mm. Like a day, it was, it was it was day hopping. When did you notice the uh, temperature difference? Like when did you feel the humidity right away? Was it Hawaii? Yeah. Okay, so that was like getting you prepared. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not like a culture shock. Like you just show up in Thailand and like. <gasps> no, like, you do. When you go up in Thailand, you do. Oh, it's <laughs> hot. It's just like the sucks all the moisture on your on your body. Oh my god, we we arrived in Damwang Airport. You know, and even though that's a commercial airport. Uh, there was a military area. When we when we got, we got on the tarmac, you know, the heat just hit you. 
Well, it's not. It's just heat. It's humidity. I know. So it's like, but it first hits the heat. <laughs> it was so uh, getting adjusted to the uncomfortableness of such ma- uh, heavy humidity. What um, in the heat? Uh, were you there during the summertime, like the worst time? We were. We arrived in June. Nineteen. Yeah, so that's hot. Yeah. Yeah. Nineteen sixty-seven. Sixty. What was your first impressions of, like, you finally made it, like, here you are in Thailand, and, like, just, like, emotionally? Well, on my way, I had kind of, I was having this sort of revelry going back in some of the movies that I saw um, with Clark Gable and Walter Pidgeon, you know, in the Far East and uh, in the bar scenes and so on. You know, I was thinking about a bar, actually. (laughs) So, um, (coughs) excuse me. Um, and we, um, they put us up, where they drove us to this hotel. I don't remember the hotel, but it was owned by one of the princesses. And, um, and it was on Pallyhoten Road. And it was uh, a typical colonial era uh, hotel, you know. And nice rooms, actually, you know, old, but they were, they were nice and comfortable. And then we went down to the bar, and it was exactly the way I was dreaming. And you had the girls in the, you know, in the silk outfits, and nah. so, uh, <laughs> and uh, drinks were only a, you know, I think a beer was like ten cents or something like that, and hard liquor was like twenty five cents. It was good times. You know? <laughs> so it was, it was just like I was dreaming. And then, um, yeah, how long were you in Thailand? Year and a half, a year and a little yet less than a year and a half. Year and a half, but it sounds like all these stories I remember growing up hearing uh, sound like you were there for a long time. A lot of experiences. A lot of experiences in a year and a half, yeah. including um, meeting mom. Exactly. So, um, how did that come about in terms of the um, uh, just the overall experience of a year and a half? Like, I mean, because like you said, there's a lot of things that had happened. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, when I was originally, I was originally uh, stationed in Bangkok, and then um, I was then then we were going to set up camp in Lopuri, which is ninety miles north of Thailand. And um, what was what was Bangkok like? Like when you enter Bangkok, I mean, what was that impression? Because it's it's overwhelming if you've no one's ever been there before. You've seen a lot of pictures and so on, but it's not like it is now. I mean, it's you know, I mean, when I was there, there were still a lot of canals. Um, it was still very crowded. And the traffic was horrible. Um, what about but, the golden temples and all those? Buildings? Oh, they're they're still there. What they, was your impression of it when you? Got oh, there? I mean, I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed, but you know, I also had, I had a sense I was I lived there before, and. Um, and you know it was a it was an uncanny feeling about something so unusual and yet so um, familiar. Familiar, yeah. Well, that's funny because that's what um, you know. Billy Crystal is famous for expressing or telling the story of you know growing up in New York his whole life, and they go make city slickers, and he said he's felt like he's been there before, yeah. like the, he could see you know uh, roping a, a calf, you know. Um, you know, a cow and doing all this stuff. And like, it came really natural to him. 
So it was interesting to you sharing that story and then hearing him share that story years later. Well, it was very early on in, uh, when I was still in Bangkok. before I was only in Bangkok for about a month before I was shipped up to Lopery, and a lot of things were happening. And um, but I was, we would go out and you know look at the town. I went to Chinatown and so on. And Chinatown, where a lot of your mystery and sabotage and your spies are. Chinatown in Bangkok. In Bangkok, you know. There's and, a Chinatown in every town. Yeah, I know. But <laughs> this was really the old, old Bangkok. And uh, but I was walking around, and I felt, my God, I've been here before. So and I was talking to the guy, and I says, "There's a house around the corner." Now, this is the first time I'm here. I said, and I described the house. And it says, I know there's a house around here. Just saying. And we walk around the corner, and there it was, just as I described it. And I was going, and, and, and it was basically unnerving to the guys I was telling. And he says, you've never been here before. He says, I know. And I said, this is weird. So um, this was my uh, introduction to, to a whole new life for me, you know. I was being exposed, and I was having new feelings, and I was having these kind of spiritual feelings, and I didn't know where we were coming from. But uh, it, it was evoking uh, some you, unusual experiences. Because you had left, uh, personally, the uh, Catholic Church, like, when you were in Dayton or L.A.? Oh, no, you know, I, a- I had grew up as a Catholic and, uh, and had uh, good feelings about it to the point. But when I was in college, uh, I, I, my life started changing, and... And I noticed that uh, I wasn't so happy about some of the things that were going on, especially with the priests and so on. And I just knew uh, that I would find something else would come in my life, you know. And um, so when I was in Thailand, uh, I was looking at Buddhism, you know, I was looking at different things. And um, there were, um, and I, it, it evoked something in me that seemed much more logical, much more uh, truthful for me, but uh, I left it alone, you know. And and certainly the idea of reincarnation was something I didn't necessarily believe in, even though I did study it when I was in high school. I had to I had to do a project on it on reincarnation, uh, and found out some interesting things about how reincarnation and Christianity were actually it was they were they were wedded together for many centuries. You know, and you had to say this was in. You went to a Catholic school. I went so to a Catholic is, high school. This is something they, you know, was a, an assignment. So it was an assignment for me. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, I I found out in my research about uh, reincarnation in the early Catholic Church. So you're in the service. Um, you said that you had to do an operation where. You're hanging out of a wing of a plane to to take some photographs of enemy territory, or what was the? What no, was the... I was. Uh, my job as an artist was to do leaflets that were to be distributed not only over Thailand but over Vietnam, and um, so I. But I was prim- predominantly uh, Thai. We were targeting the Thai people because there was you had the rebel, you know, the communist incursion in Thailand, so. Um, I was in, when I was stationed in Lopere, I was uh, camped with the Special Forces, the Green Beret. And um, they would go out on missions, come out, you know, come back, do their job. And they were, you know, they were extraordinarily skillful. And they did their job and they eliminated the, the threats, you know. But in the meantime, 
a lot of villages were exposed to uh, these communists, the rebels coming in. And my job was to, you know, to spread the good word. Did you do with like not only written text, but um, graphics or drawings? It was graphics, you know, and basically, uh, you know, you know, uh, showing, you know, the benefits of, you know, cooperating with the, the Thai army, the Thai government, the American government and so on. Um, like you never talked. It wasn't like advertises like don't go with communism. Uh, capitalism is a better. No, we didn't. We didn't talk we about capitalism. That, yeah. No, no, we didn't talk in that way. No, it was uh, for the most part the Thais rejected the communist ideas. But you know, when you're under the threat of a gun, you know it was uh, that was that was a different story. But my our idea was just to basically win the hearts and minds of people through a softer message, you know. And I did it with pictures because I drew. And um, and the the incident which you were talking about where I had to fly in a in a plane and I had to stand on the struts of the of the wing and to throw the because uh, it was a prop, it was a propeller <laughs> plane. I had to throw the I had to throw the leaflets out into the into the villages, you know, uh, just because we had to have, you know, so that they wouldn't get caught up in the prop or so on. I had to blow it, you know, throw it underneath the plane. So that was kind of interesting. But I used to go, I used to go out into the villages myself and meet with the head monks, draw their portraits, meet with the kids. And that was on my own. That was something because I just enjoyed doing, meeting the people. I had a friend uh, whose dad was in Vietnam as well, but he was a, like a doctor or dentist. And his experience in Vietnam was like a country club. Because of his status uh, and his role in the in the war, he said, "All we do is play tennis all day." Yeah, I know. I play so tennis too. It's fascinating. And then you know, um, you know, my father in law um, serving two tour duties in Vietnam, um, whole different experience. You know, so and being part of the Marines as well. Um, but it's interesting to see all these different stories. And I have another friend whose father was a helicopter pilot and never talks about it. Like he's, you know, still. Uh, I think. Um, for all these years dealing with the PTSD from yeah. it, you know. So it's interesting to hear um, these variant of stories. So you were in the service, and uh, how did it work out? Uh, how many other GIs were um, marrying the local women? <laughs> like, were you, like, the only one that oh, well, you knew Well, I was, in my group, I was the first one. But because of my maturity... Uh, even though I was pretty much the same age as everybody else, maybe a year or so older, um, and my education, just my maturity, um, I mean, there was resistance from the army uh, to to marry. Um, but I was marrying well because uh, your mother had good credentials, came from good family, and. Uh, <laughs> Sounds so funny. It sounds like so. Like I found this one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, she did, and and uh, um, the background checks were were good, and so on. Plus, uh, they wanted me out of there. They, uh, were you causing trouble? I was causing a lot of problems. Well, as I told you, the uh, my standing firm against the kind of um, um, the tortured nature of leadership that we've that I've experienced. Uh, we had a, a tortured leader, a, a major who was who was corrupt, 
he was into black marketing and doing all sorts of things. He was a lousy leader. You were basically, he was passed over by many, many times. You basically so, platooned, but you didn't get shot at. Right. <laughs> well, I covered my ass because I was... Uh, I, I got documentation, and then I made copies, and I made sure he knew that there were copies made because he knew what I knew. And um, he even told me, this is uh, right in front of some, some of his fellow officers, I'm the most important man he has. And he was trying to, he was trying to sugarcoat everything because he, wanted, he didn't want me to, to, uh, to expose him. Hmm. Uh, but as it turns out, he did set me up uh, to be to have a day off, and then I had AWOL papers the following day. Ah. So they set me up for an Article 15, and we knew everybody knew it was a setup. And uh, so anyway, I got uh, even the even the colonel who I who presided over my case, and he had to demote me. I went from an E5 to an E4. He uh, he said, "Yeah, it sounds like a setup." Um. But that's and the way it goes. Did you f- complete your term or your agreement with the Army and your, yeah. your draft status? Yeah, um, I, I did my two years. Okay, so it wasn't like the, it was early termination? No, or, no. Or, well, they, they always give you a, a re-enlistment talk because they, they try to re, you know, get people to come up. But uh, in my case, they said, if you come back, we'll kill you. That's what they <laughs> told me. <laughs> that was my re-enlistment talk. You come back and we'll get rid of you. Well, that's you, you know, that's normal family talk here too. If you come back, Dad, we'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's what they told me. That's how much they want to get rid of me. Wow. Because I had uh, the dope. I mean, I just did not like the corruption. I did not like the deceptions. You know, I was pretty much of a straight fo- shooter, and I I was pretty honest. Um, and uh, but you know, during the war. Um, we all had, we all, I mean, we all came to the, the knowledge that the Vietnam War was a mess and it was corrupt and the way things were being, you know, released to the public was, was wrong, you know. And uh, my first sergeant who was, he was a bigot. He was a bigot from the, you know, that uh, um, he was a lifer. Mm. He was a mean guy. But the one thing he did say, um, he said, this is an immoral war. And we're losing a lot of good people because of it. Hmm. And, I, and this is coming from a lifer. Yeah. So you knew. Uh, we all knew. Yeah. So what. Um, so did you know, like, that your time was coming up? Uh, and how did it correlate with uh, marrying mom and, and you know, fin- finishing out your uh, service? And I guess essentially having a, you know, having a wife. Your mother worked. Um, when I was I was then sent back from Lopery to uh, Bangkok, and I worked out of Bangkok, and I worked with um, the different, and I had a I worked with the Thais, and I was basically uh, an advisor to the Thai Army, Thai Special Forces, and promoting you know promoting their psychological operations um, uh, units and. Um, the hotel I stayed at it was the Prince Hotel. That's where we were bivouacked, and your mother worked there, and I met her there. We became friends, and uh, and I liked her. <laughs> well, I <hope>. uh, <laughs> and uh, started having these dreams about, you know, seeing us together and so on. So invited her out to a date, 
We went down to Pattaya and Bang San, and it was a really nice time. And uh, shortly thereafter, I asked her to marry me. Hmm. Now, do you remember, now we tie it back to movies, uh, do you remember the first movie you guys went to see together? Camelot. Camelot. This is uh, Richard Harrison? Mm Mm-hmm. 60... Sir Richard Harris. Richard Harris, that's right. The great Richard Harris. Um, 68. 68. So what was the what was what was the experience like going to movies in Thailand uh, at the time? What, that is different than like the cinemaplexes today. Well, first of all, the theaters were uh, the theaters we went to were beautiful in Bangkok. Um, they also dressed it up. You, it was like going to the premiere of something. It was it, it was actually like going through Disneyland. So Camelot, you walk actually through. A castle opening, you know, they actually like built a castle at the front entrance. You know, you walk with all the banners and the flags and the pomp and circumstance. You know, uh, so you've they gave you the the feeling that you're walking right into, you know, Middle Ages of uh, of England. Hmm. What um, you know, going back even to like your childhood, what do you recall? Like sort of the the theater experience. What was it? Diff- why, why did it make it unique and different? That is uh, versus today. Oh is my this, god! Like, today is just so blah. It's just they're so bad. Uh, the theater experience there was grand. It was plush. Even the local theaters, you know, it was all the filigree, the beautiful designs. It was big, you know, big screens. Um, when I went, we had uh, double and triple features. You know, always had cartoons. So, you know, you'd have a comedy, you'd have a, uh, and then Sandwiched In was a, was a Looney Tunes or a, you know, Walt Disney movie, you know. What, uh, did the people dress up? Like, what was, there was a dress out more, more dressed up. So it always yeah. felt more grand because yeah. it was removed from your household. So right. what was television like then in terms of growing up the dawn of television and watching the evolution of television in terms of, well, you went from radio to television. We went from radio to television. So we listened to uh, we listened to The Shadow and listened to Tom Mix and Roy Rogers and listened to uh, Burns and Allen and Jack Benny and all those things on TV on radio. And then we got a TV set, and it was a console, a twelve-inch screen. Can you imagine a twelve-inch screen? I know. And it was a black and white. And we saw Howdy Doody and uh, Milton Berle. This is like. I don't know, 47, 48, I think it was. Do you um, recall sort of like how they mixed in advertising? Was it always straightforward or was it something like, this is presented by GE? Yeah, this is presented by, it was pretty much straightforward. And I mean, um, they, it wasn't later on when they started having the film, you know, like they had separate commercials. It was like, it was like the, the, the TV stars themselves presenting Camel cigarettes or Lucky Strike and, you know, or Budweiser beer or whatever it was. You know, they, the announcers themselves were actually doing the commercials. Yeah, I remember seeing, like, uh, an old uh, Flintstones commercial. Literally, it was uh, Fred and Barney on the side of the house smoking cigarettes yeah. and, you know, getting away from doing work as right. Betty, you know, and... Um, Wilma, we're looking for him, you know. <laughs> it's right. just like it's the time, you know, time, the times have definitely changed in that perspective. From what you can remember, do you, was there certain movies that just had like a major impact of culture or the, the conversation of the world that you were living in? 
like a few significant ones, you know, because in my perspective, it seemed like a lot of things changed when Jaws, you know, came right. out. But was there anything prior to that that you could Rubble without that? a cause. Oh, really? Yeah. That just shook up the, oh, yeah. the culture? Absolutely. I yeah. mean, that was big. Um, because, you know, we were all coming of age, us, you know, us war babies. <laughs> you know, we were coming of age, we were teenagers. And uh, it can sort of rang true. You know, uh, we were kind of getting rebellious against the authority, our parents, and so on. And, um, and yeah, uh, there was some of that. I, I, I connected with what was going on there. Do you remember another time? Do you remember, like, the um, sort of, um, what can you, do you remember the experience of, like, when Jaws came out? Because that seemed to change. Well, you was <laughs> well. We were all kids, but you but were, but what what was it like for an adult as a parent? Well, I was frightened by it, but uh, you know, we were living in the Hamptons, and we were living where sharks lived. You know, we had some of the greatest collections of great whites and and mako sharks uh, around in, in Long Island in the Hamptons. Uh, I just remember sitting with you guys. And, uh, you know, we're all scared of the shark and you're rooting the shark on, you know, I'm just with it. I just thought you were kind of a strange kid. <laughs> so, uh, now do you remember, um, Star Wars? Like, oh, what, yeah. what was that? What was the, cause you know, as kids, we remember it a certain way, but what is it as a, as a parent and adult? What did you see it as? Well, this is a time when I, I was this, I had this, um, I was beginning my spiritual journey in a way, and I, I kind of saw it as a spiritual journey, you know, with the... Uh, well, you're not alone, because Francis Ford Coppola was telling, you know, George Lucas, like, we got to start our own religion on yes, this. Yeah, I know. And that's George Lucas was right. like, well, we, yeah. slow down, Francis. <laughs> well, you know, books like Jonathan Livingston Siegel, and uh, they were coming out, and they were... Uh, this was the exploration. This was the... Um, the spiritual revolution that was taking hold. It was throwing out the old and, you know, discovering a whole new way of thinking you know, on a spiritual level, you know. Um, and from my point of view, uh, I was, you know, religion is fine if you're brought up in it, you know, in a way, because it kind of gives you structure. But as you grow older, one has to be accepting of their own, you know, responsibility, their own, their own journey back to God, so to speak. So um, I saw uh, a spiritual path, a spiritual journey, as an individual one, not as a collective. And everybody was sort of fine discovering that for themselves. And that was exciting. I liked that. And so all of these, these the writings like Jonathan Siegel, the movies like Star Wars and so even Star Trek, uh, they were exploring some of these things through in an adventurous way. Hmm, Interesting. Well, we can wrap it up. We're almost at an hour here, but, um, you know, this is part of this, um, you know, honoring the vets. You know, I was one mm-hmm. of many podcasts that were uh, doing so, and we were just, we were just, re- inst- we were just instructed to, you know, find a vet and interview them. And I thought, well, I'll just ask my, my pops, <laughs> you know, and see what was like, uh, you know, during that time that, and, and I've heard most of these stories, but it's interesting to hear it all again in sort of a more linear context. Um, yeah. Because, like I said, as growing up, I would hear snippets of it. But now to see it kind of all put together is kind of cool. Right. So, as always, you know, we're all just thankful for anybody who's 
put the time in to be, uh, to serve this nation, you know, in one way or another, mm -hmm. you know, voluntary or not voluntary, but you're there and committed and, and making something happen. So I don't regret the experience. I mean, as much as, well, if you did, I wouldn't be around, yeah, no, you know, no, so. <laughs> no. I mean, you know, yeah, uh, service is really important. Um, and, uh, not everybody, you know, even there are a lot of people who don't, who serve, unfortunately, are not appreciated. And when we came back, when we came back from the war, uh, you know, we got spat on. I actually, I took my uniform off. I wouldn't wear my uniform. I went civilian right away because I didn't want to be connected because your mother being, um, you know, uh, an Asian lady. Uh, an Oriental. We, <laughs> an Oriental. Uh, we met some, some backlash. Well, yeah, because you went, you went from San Francisco to New York right away, right? In San Francisco to L.A., and then from L.A. to meet some old friends, like, you know, people mm -hmm. like you, I, I introduce you to eventually. And then we traveled by car all the way back to New York. It's crazy. Yeah. And, you know, people, they, they just saw the Asians as that was the enemy we were fighting. Mm, not right? all. I mean, we had uh, most of my family embraced your mom. Uh, not everybody did, but uh, most of them did. And um, they were, uh, you know, your mom loved it here. Your mom felt comfortable here. She felt she felt it was where she needed to be, where she should be. So, um, and she's strong enough also to kind of just brush off any kind of uh, negative feedback from certain people. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, yeah. I don't know if I've embraced mom yet. I reject her. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Well, um, she'll get you back. Yeah. She, <laughs> well, that's it. I thank you for your time um, this hour, just uh, sharing your story. And um, I don't know how it necessarily connected to the film, but I, I, hopefully people get some value out of listening to this. It's definitely a little different of an episode than I've ever had before on the podcast, but... I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what your voice sounds like on recording. You kind of got this like Clint Eastwood thing going with this. I'm a little hoarse right now, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's about it. Thank you very much. So that concludes my interview with my father, who happens to be named Kevin. I realize I never mentioned his name, so there it is. His name is Kevin. And yeah, there were some interesting things there I never quite heard before. I might, like, again, I said I've heard snippets of it, but never quite in the same context, uh, like in a linear fashion. So it was interesting for me. I don't know if it was interesting for you. If you like this episode, if you, you know, was interested, if you want to hear more stories from my father, he has a lot more to say, you know, let me know. I could bring him back on for like some special occasions, um, you know, kind of wheel him out like, there he is, you know, <laughs> but, uh, like if, you know, if, the difference is if I had my mother on, uh, you wouldn't, it wouldn't work in audio cause you would need subtitles. <laughs> so bad. And seriously, it's very hard to understand her English, <laughs> but, um, Again, if you like this episode, uh, please leave a ratings and review onto iTunes for me. I could really help it. I could really help it. I could really use the help. Thank you. Again, all you have to do is go to filmtrooper.com forward slash iTunes, and that will take you to the iTunes page. And then you just click on write a review, and you can leave a ratings and review. And I really appreciate it. We'll be back to sort of our normal broadcasting uh, content 
broadcasting content. Like I actually have a radio station, you know, whatever I do to get these podcasts up, um, I will continue to try to give you the best value as I can to try to bridge the gap between entrepreneurship and filmmaking to see if we can't figure out how to succeed together as filmmaking entrepreneurs, a la, a la, or AKA film trooper. Thanks again. I'll see you guys soon. Bye.